0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Laura Kelly, a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, the authors of the new book, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. Jack and Jennifer, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Jennifer, can you tell us a
2: little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So, I am a writer and I teach in the journalism program at Boston College and in the education studies program at Yale. And I live in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which, if listeners don't know, is America's oldest seaport, currently celebrating its 400th anniversary. And, Jack, could you introduce yourself?
0: Jack Schneider. Oh, I'm a new title. It's extremely long. I kind of would have to bumble. Uh I'm Dwight. W. Allen, distinguished professor at, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and uh, I co-host the podcast Edinburgh with Jennifer, and we are uh, the co-authors of the book we're going to talk about today, as well as a book that I think we've the very end
1: Thank you. So I have some questions prepared here, and my thought was that I would pitch one question to each of you, and. That person can take the question. And then if your collaborator wants to add on, you can. If not, we can just go on to the next question. So this first question I had marked for Jennifer, if you would tell us about your collaboration. So Jack, you are a historian, you work in academia. Um, Jennifer, you're a journalist and also work in academia. So, how did you come together and what has this collaboration allowed you to accomplish that you couldn't have otherwise done?
2: We connected now a number of years ago, and we were we were both in the sort of public education advocacy space in Massachusetts. At the time, I was the author of a humorous blog in which I poked fun at the excesses of the what was then the bipartisan education reform movement that was really kind of at its most fevered state. And, and Jack would often be at the State House testifying about what he saw as the limits of, of those policies. And so, when, when I needed a co host for the podcast, I thought that Jack would be a, a great person to team up with. And at the time, I really hadn't thought through what it would mean to collaborate with an education historian. And wow, after many years of working together and we write together a lot and we do the biweekly podcast, I can honestly say that that having a collaborator who's an historian turns out to just be so useful because whatever the issue is, and I'm spending a lot of my time talking to people who are out in the world dealing with this stuff, uh, you know, in their own communities, I can then turn to Jack and say, here's what i am witnessing. Have we seen this before? And how did it end? And so as a result, I feel like I have such a better understanding of the, of, of sort of the long backstory of what's happening in and around our schools today.
0: Just in case, uh, I don't get asked about what it's like to work with Jennifer. Uh, the thing that I try to say whenever we have an opportunity which is that Jennifer is the most completely informed person I know about what's happening right now. And so I think we make a pretty good team in that if you want to talk about what happened five, ten, fifty, five hundred years ago, I generally have a pretty good sense of all. Uh, but if you want to know what happened yesterday or what's happening this afternoon, then Jennifer is like literally the best person to
1: that seems like a really good collaboration and like more people should do that it seems really helpful to put the history in contact with the present So this is a book, Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, about efforts to privatize schools, so commonly people may be familiar with charters and vouchers, but you also discuss related topics like undermining teachers' unions, the expansion of virtual education options, and the idea that teachers may become low-paid, independent contractors. Your stance is very clearly that these efforts to privatize education are bad, and you claim in the preface that public education is worth fighting for. Why? Jack, do you want to get us started on that?
0: One of the things that Jennifer and I often try to talk about is the fact that students and their families have rights, you know, with the system. They are being presented by opponents of what is often called school choice, but which we are talking about is privatization, and they are presented with options, and frankly, I would rather have rights than options, especially if I were a parent to, let's say, a student with disabilities, not for oh, there simply may not be options paid to assist. or assistance, where depending on where you live, if I were the parent of the plus student who may live in an area where a variety of schools may say, no, we, we don't have a spot. For you. I think that in addition to talking about the rights that people have in the public education system, I think it's really important to talk about the commitments that we have made as a society to our public education system. And that's very connected to a third thing, which is the idea of the public good that they fund public education with our tax dollars, not because we believe that 50 million children as I mean, public schools couldn't possibly hold together whatever the cost of tutoring or a low cost private school might be that we actually had a system like that years prior to eventually but a decision was made by banning stakeholders and this goes back to the what was called the public school and that in the early to mid nineteenth century, the decision was made that we list our democracy to the possibility that people would forego education or would receive an inadequate education; that there would be members of our society who, not only didn't possess basic literacy numeracy, but hadn't been given the opportunity to participate as full fledged members. Now. Granted, we could tell an entire history. There have been many histories of the ways that we were excluded. But because of the public nature of that system, but right, as our understanding of ourselves as a public has expanded a little bit, right, As we have come to recognize the rights and the dignity of different groups than were historically, they have been more and more full educational system in a way that would not have necessarily occurred in a system and if we are then looking about the commitments may because it is a system then ostensibly so that we can see that there is at least a kind of acceptance if not always conscious of the fact that we do need to tax ourselves in order to ensure an adequate education for every young person in the states, and if we stop at that as something that benefits all of us and for which we are all collectively responsible, suddenly it becomes a lot easier to imagine a system in which we say, well, why would I be paying for the education of all these children who aren't my children? And we can then begin to imagine a world in which families have to choose the lowest cost option available to them. Us taxpayers are no longer willing to support the education of children of it own. and that's why we see so many of these various policy efforts described. in the question we connected to each other because if what you are trying to do is alienate people from this pretty high cost system that we have, right? we spend the better article of trillion dollars every year to educate America's young people, and I can't think of a better expense uh to be committing our funds to but if what you want to do is eliminate that pretty heavily expense that taxpayers are responsible for then along with the option of you know a private school voucher what you need to begin thinking about is how are we going to begin radically reducing costs that's where you get things like the idea of virtual schools micro schools um, teachers as gig workers, schools without, teachers, where students just sit on tablets all day long. It's a very frightening world. And we just, when I relate to book, we referred to the side, all author of the book is the black mirror section of the book, but it turned out that it wasn't that at all. It was just the crystal ball section because we're already very much in the world that we thought we were really scaring people about. And it turned out we were just, it was forming them about Actually.
2: I would just add one piece to that. I pick up on that you mentioned in your question, which you asked now some time ago. <laughs> that, that that our point of view was very clear, and I think a lot of people were surprised by that, and they were surprised for two reasons. One, because we did, we were making the case that that a lot of different policies that appeared. To, to have very little relation to each other, that we were arguing that that they're part of a broader vision, but I think also because Jack is a scholar and scholars really aren't supposed to just put it out there, right? Um, and and so here we are, fast forward a few years, and what Jack just said is absolutely right that there is much less hesitancy on the part of proponents of this vision about hiding what their ultimate that their ultimate goal is. And so now, if anyone, our book feels like it's you know, it needs to be made, the case needs to be made even more sharply. And I think that's what we're trying to do next time around.
1: So you have led right into
2: the next question. So you open your new process
1: with, we were trying to scare people. And you, you had to write a new forward to the most recent addition to the book, even though the original book just came out to say that privatization is advancing much faster than you anticipated with your first edition. So can you paint us a picture, and I'm going to start with Jennifer for this one, paint us a picture of the dystopian future, or as you say, the dystopian present that you're warning against with this book? Yes,
2: the dystopian uh future, which is coming rapidly, is one in which the burden of paying for K-12 education will be more and more shifted to parents themselves, and they have to navigate a complicated, unregulated landscape in which their kids have no rights, they have no rights, and the schools are empowered to discriminate. And it's a big part of the reason why Americans have been so hesitant to embrace this vision for so long, right, that anytime you put private school vouchers up for a vote, people voted down. They don't, they're deeply uncomfortable with that idea that we're going to pay for, for uh, either discrimination with tax dollars or for sectarian education. With with tax dollars, so that what I just described is actually moving towards us really quickly. Uh, we're now up to in the we you know school choice proponents are are calling this the season of school choice. Six states now uh, let um, uh, parents spend taxpayer dollars on the edu- quote unquote education option of their choosing. The goal in all these states is to reach what they call universal choice and. What you know, we we were joking that we referred to the last section of our of the schoolhouse door as the Black Mirror section, and I think people when they said that, they they were thinking in particular of our description of the goal of unbundling education from not just schools but place more broadly that instead just like you might divorce from your cable company and embrace an all streaming lifestyle that's really the vision for schools that you would choose an array of education options through a vendor and you know maybe a course here in the morning Betsy DeVos described this brilliantly at a talk she gave in Cleveland where she had a rural student in the Dakotas and he would spend his morning working out in the bean fields living listening to a great book seminar. And then maybe he would go off to his internship at the John Deere uh, factory. And then finally, he might finish up at a local charter school. Well, of course, there are no local charter schools in rural Dakotas because there isn't enough population to support that. And I think that's where, you know, people look at that and they think, this is crazy. This is a lonely vision. This is not what we want. So, you know,
1: and you just said this, Jennifer, that vouchers are unpopular and people vote them down. You know in the book that most American kids are in public schools. Most Americans feel good about their local schools. Most Americans want us to have public schools. And as you said, vouchers are unpopular. So who's pushing this and how are they managing to be so successful? Jack, do you want to take that?
0: Yeah, this yes the old street or folks on the right who don't believe that the state should play a very powerful role in American life. Um, one of the things that Jennifer has uh, said has emerged for her as uh, a takeaway from um, our podcast and we together is that there is a group of folks who has been angry since the new and has been hell bent on, on making the kind of society that emerged after the New Deal during war And you can really see it going to take shape as we are in Google during Barry Goldwater's run. It was a really galvanizing time for young circles like Ronald Reagan, who at one point in his life had been a union leader and a supporter of FDR. And these young conservatives that came up of age in what, six was seven and 16, and built institutions. They were very effective at that. And so we see organizations like Cato, like the American Enterprise Institute, like the Hoover Foundation, mission, like, uh, excuse me, excuse me, um, like, uh, like state level organizations, right. like that Setter Michigan. Uh, eventually, the Gold Glover Institute in Arizona. Well, you see these organizations not only being created, but also working together in a collaborating and effective way to lay the groundwork for long term policy goals. And they happen to have pocketed rules, right? So the, the Coke Rebels are a great example. Go to the origins of any of these organizations, and you find the Kochs or their father involved in some way. And the same is true for lots of conservative millionaires and billionaires who have worked to lay the groundwork, not just through the creation of these organizations, but through things like model legislation being proposed by the American Legislative Exchange Council, Alex or through policy groups being floated to different state legislators in red states where the idea was we can begin this long-term education campaign. And then there was an actual concerted effort to begin lodging small victories that, as it turns out, those on the left, at least the center-left members of the Democratic Party were complicit in aiding them you know, winning victories on the um, old time. The best example of that would be charter schools, right? For those on the left, charter schools seemed like, to borrow a phrase from uh, the Cold War, the end of history. Right? No longer does the right and the left mean to fight over um, the role of markets in schools, where the right would advocate for vouchers and the left would advocate for traditional public schools charters could be the final compromise, right? They are public schools, they are governed by the state, but they have an element of choice and uh, the market built into them. Well, for those on the right, charters were never in the end game. They were always a way station. And you can see that folks like Cory Booker, who had stood on stage with people like Betsy DeVos, were in a very difficult position to try to explain their advocacy for school choice over an, more than a decade, in some cases for a couple decades, um, when folks like Betsy DeVos suddenly were coming out with full-throated support for vouchers. So a big part of this story is about patience. It's about organization building It's about the creation of a larger policy agenda and work towards the realization of that agenda through smaller scale, but and then another part is about effective mobilization of culture. And that's really what, what took us from this very slow creep to this sudden moment, flippy, because those are the right who are supporters of public education, but who are very easily swept up in culture war activity abound, gender, race, which, and are in many ways being very effectively alienated on public worlds by folks who really are, are manipulating, uh, cultural war in a way that advances an agenda. And that is not about cultural at all, but is about pulling art institutions. And in this case, or our public institution is an institution that they're using this as the policy window to accomplish something that otherwise would be impossible to accomplish.
1: So following up on that idea, why are they pushing this so hard? And it's clear that this is something with historical roots. It's clear that this is an ideologically consistent position. But one thing I try to emphasize, I teach a class called Urban Education um, at – a liberal arts school, at a private liberal arts school. And one thing I try to do there is convince the students that you're invested in public education, whether you went to it, whether you're gonna work in it, whether your kids are gonna go to it or not, because you live in society and a society benefits from public education system. So one thing that remains unclear to me is these people, excuse me, and groups that are pushing forward the privatization agenda, it seems to me that purely out of self-interest, they would prefer to live in a society with a robust public education system, and yet that doesn't seem
2: to be the case. So I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Jennifer? I think that that is such a good question because I am frankly baffled by the same things that we're watching. And states enact policies, and not just in education, but in all kinds of spheres that are guaranteed to make life for people in their states worse. They're going to make their states less equal. And they're also going to, you know, it seems like they are going to undercut their own desire to be economically competitive. And how? so how is it that that then becomes you know the vision that they're they're running on or enacting once they're in office so a lot of this just ha- it's a reflection of our deeply polarized and gerrymandered political reality right that when when citizens are actually given the chance to weigh in on these policies whether at the ballot box as as voters did in Arizona when they voted on a universal voucher program and overwhelmingly rejected it only to have their own legislators override them, or in a place like Idaho, where you know a grassroots group called Reclaim Idaho gathered, you know, hundreds of thousands of t- signatures to in support of more funding for public education. And you know, they found something fascinating that even even people who were really troubled by the culture war claims, you know, that that argument, those CRT messages, were getting through. They still were really opposed to the idea of dismantling public education. They thought they wanted to see public education get more funding. So in some ways, this agenda is just another example of how what happens when when state government becomes really unrepresentative, unrepresentative. But I do think that you're absolutely right that that it seems like that, you know, People are invested in, in a vision that is unpopular and going to make people's lives worse. And how gated does your own life have to be in order to protect yourself from that? So what I often ask people to do is, you know, when you, because education seems to be viewed as its own world, pay attention to all the policies that are being enacted and ask yourself just a simple question, is this policy going to make life more or less equal in the state. And over and over again, you see that they're kind of rolling back the clock on things like child labor protections or something as simple as a, you know, a Texas, uh, there was a, a mandate in Texas that that workers who work outside um, in Texas, it's been 120 degrees in the last week, that, you know, they have, uh, they are guaranteed water breaks. So, you know, the governor just rolled that back. What is the thinking there? You know, who benefits when life is made worse? And I think that's where, that's what we really have to wrangle with right now. So once again,
1: you have previewed the next question. I know on your own podcast, have you heard, you recently covered the grassroots organizing of educators, parents and students trying to slow down or stop state and local efforts at privatization. So, who is fighting back against privatization and is it working?
2: Jack, can I start with that and then and and I won't be long. Yeah. Um, so we're you're going to hear at the end of the show about the new book we're working on and I spend my mornings my mornings writing and my afternoons talking to people on the ground. And I can assure you that there is a tremendous amount of organizing happening. It just doesn't get anywhere near the amount of attention that say a mom for liberty does. And the places where where organizing is really effective, it's when unusual coalitions are forming. Uh, where students are front and center where people really understand that the threat to public education is you know is part of an old story and they're not you know they're they're very reluctant to to see their their institutions privatized but it is really amazing to see how when there is an opportunity for the public to weigh in they're weighing in loud and clear that that they want A robustly funded public education system that raises up the next generation of citizens that teaches honest history and the actually the voices that are calling for very a very different vision are, are in the extreme minority so I can't tell you like how encouraging it is to talk to people all over the country and realize that there's uh, a different story playing out. It's just one we don't hear enough about.
0: Reported podcast here soon, a scholar named Will And this is a great book. came off of this school, specifically in the city of Western Washington. I guess it's Western Washington University. And one of the things that came up in that conversation was the importance of ensuring that. All stakeholders see themselves in public schools and see the public schools as belonging to them, and that has really important implications for advocates of education. There's, it can't simply be that public education is an issue of the left if it has not historically, right. But if the way that advocacy unfolds is that. Support for education is tied to support for public education is tied to issues that are very divisive, which is not to say that they are raw. Uh, So, I'll give you an example with the the teaching of critical race theory, right? Um, Or or the teaching of outlets, right? If, If that is done in a way that those on the left, including myself, would Feel fantastic about, right? At the expense of those on the right whose kids are mm-hmm. involved in the public schools, right? I think the risk there is that those people will be further over- alienated from public education and no longer see any purpose that was supporting it, And And that's, I think, a really important and not obvious thing for us to bear in mind is that winning a victory is actually self-disciplined by a lot of consistent, which is not to say that we don't stand out for the rights of LGBTQ plus kids, right? We do. They have rights, actually, fortunately, and they matter. And we need to make sure that that's the case in every school district and at the school. The same with regard to teaching an open and honest history of uh, America's uh, racial past. And dealing with America's racially unequal present. Right? If there's a lot that is political, but which is also an ethical issue, right? And for many of us a moral issue that involves standing up and fighting good things that actually will probably alienate some people. And that's unfortunate but necessary. But there's also a way you engage in advocacy activism a way that is cognizant of the importance of maintaining broad-based support uh, for public education. And I think we're in a moment right now where we are at particular risk of losing sight of that. And if we do, what we end up with is support for public education among, let's call it half of the American people, and that actually won't work, right? Uh, That's like having half of the american people supporting the idea of social security right the system doesn't work that way and that plays exactly hands of folks whose long-term vision again is not just about moving schooling out of the realm of democratic politics and into the realm of market it's also about invading taxpayers and that's another thing that really means to our above the advocacy message is to help people understand sure, the voucher you get may be equivalent to the people expenditures that your state has right now. Maybe the voucher is worth $10,000 for long, but it won't be in five years. In five years, the voucher is going to be worth about half that. And five years after that, it will be worth about half of that. And pretty soon, there will only be vouchers available to families living in Armory, which will only afford them some kind of online option for their kids, which will be vastly unequal to even what middle class families are able to provide for their kids. And helping them understand that is, I think, a really important and, and potentially non artisan way of standing up for public education, helping people understand what's at what stake.
1: So building on this idea of activism and advocacy, you say in the conclusion, you reiterate that you're trying to scare people. And my question was, once they're scared, what should they do next? And you alluded to some
2: things, but I don't know if either of you wants to say more about that. I was interviewing um, some folks in New Hampshire the other day, and that's a place where you're, you know, if you want to see an answer to your question about people pushing back, um, you it's it's happening all over New Hampshire and it's exactly what Jack was talking about, that that these are not the these campaigns are not partisan. People don't wanna see their schools become partisan entities. But one of the women I was interviewing, she you know, we our book has Wolf in the title, but she said that actually a more appropriate metaphor for what's happening right now is a coyote that coyotes have a strategy for making it appear or sound like there are more of them than there really are, that they they split up. And I live on a tidal river and we have across the, the river in the woods, you would think there were a million coyotes. There are actually only four. And one of the things that you see happening in these communities is that they are effectively putting together coalitions and starting to hash out a vision of what what they think schools should be for and what you will find is that this totally crosses partisan lines that wherever you go people have a much more ambitious and frankly expensive and expansive vision of what schools should do and what they'd like their kids To have access to And I think that 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 also needs to be Sort of part of the conversation We can't just be against something We can't spend all of our time Clicking on links um, About you know Here's the terrible thing that Mobs for Liberty did this week Right like it's on us To figure out a way To talk about what public schools are for That broadens the tent of people Who believe in it right? And that's really the only way that, you know, like, yes, we wanted to scare people, but I think now that, that people really are scared. And so now they, you know, they need to connect with one another, start talking to their friends and neighbors, and be part of a broader conversation about why we have
0: schools. The only thing that I would add to that, I think Jenna feels exactly right. One of the things that we talked about is the fact that folks who are determined to dismantle public education are actually pretty small in their overall numbers. And Mobs for Liberty is a great example of that, right? The outsized media coverage that they get would suggest that they have membership of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. But if you actually look at you know, who the folks are who are, for instance, filing petitions to ban books, right? the numbers get pretty small. Really, and the metaphor that I was using in some of my is that of opening level a market that really, this is an effort to try to scam Americans by engaging in this kind of door-to-door activity, where you then bring them on as potential recruits of further members and. In multi-level marketing, the political version, right? The thing you're selling is conspiracy. The thing that that thrives on is the idea that you are a legitimate left. To the status quo, and one of the things that's then important to remember in our advocacy is not that moms from the liberty is a dangerous by which they're being labeled as. Now, I think there is a case to be made for that being true. But I think it's also the case to be main that they are a fringe organization with very few actual members and even smaller numbers in terms of often all working on the ground, going to school board meetings, challenging books in libraries. And what that does is it actually deflates their ability to recruit people into this multi-level marketing system. Where if what they are selling then is a conspiracy that people view as illegitimate, fringe and unappealing. It's very hard to then bring people on to start selling that to their own friends and neighbors as opposed to if they're in danger, right? If the left has labeled them as a threat, suddenly there's a kind of legitimacy there, right? Uh, You're a Avon now, right? You're herbalized. You're cut-toe. You know, you've got a product that you can actually sell. And so I think a a really important part of advocacy has to be about undermining their ability to sell producers.
1: So our last question, I will ask you,
2: what are you working on now? So we are working on a book that is aimed at the most general audience we're capable of writing for. It's meant to be a guide for anyone who just is trying to make sense of, why the schools are on fire and you know our a, a lot of people read our book it's done quite well um, but it's still you know it's not accessible to people who don't know anything about schools to people who aren't familiar with how school districts are organized they can't rattle off acronyms and so we need to write for those people too and i think what's kind of interesting is that you know we're we're accepting that we're accepting that you know the, that sentence that i just spent all morning crafting it's possible that somebody's going to skip right over it, but they'll look at the graphic on the page. They'll read the sidebar, and so we are trying to make the the case in as really as simple and compelling a way as we can that that public schools are endangered and that. Fighting for them is really important and also holding up those models that I was talking about where communities are are effectively pushing back. So when I interview people in the afternoons, when I've done my writing, I ask them what kinds of questions did they get from people and what would they like to see a book like this address and people answer without any hesitation at all. And it's been enormously clarifying and frankly, kind of liberating that you, know, you wouldn't believe how how little you actually need to say when there's this amount of urgency.
0: One of the things that we're trying to do in the book is help people understand the connection between the culture war that's happening in public education and the long-term agenda of what we spend most of the world have store because I think most Americans are aware right now that there are things like Bans on transgender kids with a bachelor and limo bid for themselves. There are attacks on transgender athletes. There are bans on uh NCRT, or um there are popular issues around, for instance, uh cheating programs after american the street course. People are aware of all. And I think people often see as separate the voucher bills that have rolled out in a couple dozen states, um, and one of the goals of ours in this project is to help people understand these things are interconnected, That actually, the policy agenda had on enacted out the culture war activity that is happening, that is drawing people into the movement who otherwise would not at all be attracted by the idea it shouldn't end and and jennifer alluded to this but you know trying to then write for the broadest possible audience also means not writing for hard-sharing members of the radical left and that's actually been a real challenge you know i think that we're we're doing ourselves if we think that we're going to a lot of uh red state Republican diehard voters here. But I think that it is quite possible to write a book that allows those folks to say, well, in this chapter, Jack and Jennifer bought Right. I'm not a fan of this particular chapter, but there is some good information. Um and and I think that one of the things that's been exciting for me in this project, as well as listening conversations that we've been having on our podcast, with scholars is the idea of beginning it's about some common ground once more um that actually was something that i was very committed to early in my career uh i for instance started a blog with michelle was much reviled by the left where burr worked in washington dc as superintendent there and her collaboration with folks uh, Made winning Superman um, and as being a kind of symbol of the corporate one and I her work in the nonprofit sector. Um, and and I believed firmly that she and I could find things that agreed upon and that might allow us to then shave off the fringier elements of what we each believe that actually would not make for stable and sustainable policy in education, and I just haven't seen it as more impactful to be a common ground nursing in the past ten years. Um, it has felt very urgent and necessary to be somebody who is, you know, uh, a, a bit more towards the vanguard. Um, but but I do like the idea that is at the heart of this book of once more trying our bounds on the ground to say, actually, there's a lot that can still go on and that those of us who are working so hard to divide Americans from each other are smaller in number than those of us who see something for all of us, particularly Christian.
1: Well, thank you so much to both of you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And this was fun. Thank you.